Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, here as always with David Scott. It's fantastic to be back, Paul. Our guest this week, I'm excited to finally get him on the show, uh, one of the economists uh, uh, nationwide whose um, research and analysis that I always look out for, um, particularly around the domestic data, it's senior economist from the Commonwealth Bank, Gareth Aird. Gareth, great to have you on the show. Thank you, gentlemen. It's, it's really good to be here. Uh, and it's really great timing because uh, it has been, I mean, markets this week. There's, there's been so much activity, but it has been a very, very interesting week in terms of um, the domestic economic data. We had the national accounts, the GDP numbers this week. Uh, a big miss as these things go. Um, why don't you, do you want to kick us off, take, take us through it? What were the standout elements for you? Sure. Look, in summary, I think it was an underwhelming result. Um, I think there's been concerns for a while that the economy might slow at some point in the future, but we haven't got to that stage yet until this week's national accounts, which I think if you were in the camp expecting the economy to slow at some point, you probably saw some validation in that. Um, quite a miss on, on expectations and expectations were relatively modest anyway. So in summary, um, it was a pretty weak September quarter for the economy. Yeah, and look, bad news got to travel fast, right? So we're like the RBA just recently uh, had its forecast, Dave, you know, 3.5% growth that we're looking at, and it they doesn't were look call, like... calling the, uh, economic, the economy is performing well uh, one day before the uh, national accounts were released. I suppose trend growth is uh, no, probably technically you know, performing okay. Uh, I'm not sure we can say well, but uh, it was a case of unfortunate timing, obviously, you know, a month ago, uh, calling 3.5% average uh, growth over this year and next. Uh, based on some of the signals that we saw in the report, that looks a little bit ambitious if it was beforehand. Yeah, um, t- it'll take a bit of a miracle, right, for them, for them to get there. Uh, to go for this year at least, uh, no, I think we're going to have to need a real chunky, you know, we're talking about a 1.3% uh, no, quarterly increase uh, in the last quarter to go and get to that, uh, that average for this year. Um, and that would be you know, a stellar performance in anyone's language and probably, you know, as you said, a bit of a miracle. Sure is a lot of Christmas shopping. Um, okay. <laughs> um, but let's, let's look at some of the details. Um, consumption, uh, Gareth, has been a big question this year. The RBA keeps talking about it being a risk for the economy. Uh, so what happened there? Well, in some sense, that risk materialised this quarter. It was weak. Um, you know, I wasn't too hung up on it, though, because if you look back to the past few years, we've had this really choppy nature of consumer spending where we've had a strong quarter followed by a weak quarter, strong and then weak. And it followed suit this quarter. Basically, the June quarter spending was pretty pretty solid and then it was weak. I, I was almost more disappointed by the retail trade figures yesterday because I thought, oh, look, if we get a decent retail trade print, kind of means that that, that, that pattern with this scene is, is continuing. But it was a, a weak result. And that means, are we looking at now a soft second half of 2018? And I think that that is the risk, that, that the negative wealth effect that people, some people have expected would, would materialise might actually be coming to fruition. Yeah, because there's a – sorry, Dave. No, I was just uh, – you released a note. Uh, Commonwealth Bank released a note. Uh, and then I remember the, the one thing that stuck out to me, like, immediately was, like, the concern is New South Wales. Uh, it was noteworthy. I think the, uh, the, the two-month percentage decline in retail sales in, in New South Wales, so we had a fall in, uh, in both September and October, the largest since early 2012. So it's one of those – no, obviously property prices in Sydney have sort of led this downturn that we've seen also in Melbourne. It's now sort of starting to spread out across the broader economy. But uh, it was one of those sort of really concerning things that came out and said, oh, well, hang on. You know, this wealth effect and, and questions about whether it actually, you know, does it exist or not? Uh, you no, know, we get another negative month next month. Uh, I suggest there would be no doubt about you know, that 
the housing market is definitely causing a change in behaviour. Yeah, I think that's right. In fact, it's, it's hard to actually marry up what the figures we saw on Wednesday in terms of national counts with what the labour market is telling us. So mm. we've had very strong jobs growth for a couple of years now and the jobless rate has been coming down. Now, in that environment, you don't expect to see weak output. But that's what what's, that's what the figures are telling us. So I think this is an important point. In a well-functioning economy, you should be seeing retail spending growth growing at a fairly decent clip, right? So now, now not regarding, like, um, not uh, uh, ignoring the fact that, you know, retail sales, you know, it's measured in dollars, right? The, this data is measured in dollars and there's very, very significant uh, deflationary, um, competi- competitive um, disinflationary forces in the retail sector. But you still should be seeing reasonably healthy growth of like 2.5% a year um, if everything's working okay. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And it's it's very hard to almost marry up the fact that the jobless rate has come down to five percent, which which is a good outcome, and yet consumer spending is is on the soft side, and and yet the wages data is telling us there's been a slight pickup in wages. So, you know, to to, to package it all together, um, I I can totally understand now why people are concerned about where the economy is going to go over the next two years because. If you have that kind of improvement that we've seen in the labour market, you should expect things to be accelerating now. And yet the figures that we got on Wednesday actually told us that things are slowing. Yeah. In terms of uh, labour market, where do you rank that in terms of importance for, you know, so what happens next year? Uh, my personal view is that, you know, that so much now is hinging on that labour market. You now where you're talking about domestic interest rates, you're talking about economic growth. You know, in your opinion, you know, how important is that, you know, that unemployment rate keeps grinding lower and you know, wages keep boosting in terms of, you know, what we'll see next year? Oh, look, I, I put it at the top of importance. Um, I mean, for a variety of reasons, not just because I look at economic data, but because I think ultimately people, you don't want a high jobless rate because it means there's a lot of people out there who want work and can't get it. So I think from a, even from a societal perspective, we want a low jobless rate. But I think in terms of just, just having a, a look at where the economy is likely to go, we're going to need to see it come down further if we're going to see the kind of wages and inflation outcomes that are desirable. Um, and we're not there yet, and it's sort of crazy to think we've ended up with a jobless rate of five percent, and yet we've still got like relatively low wages growth. We've still got relatively low inflation. We've got a we've got a, a market view which is slowly turning around towards rate cuts. I mean, that's that's not a normal paradigm, if you like. Exactly, it is crazy. Like I, the last process before we walked into the uh, and that's what I was uh, rushing to go and do before we came in was uh, there was you no know, the, the financial markets OIS uh, swaps pricing now is actually putting a small possibility of a cut by August next year. Now we're only talking you know, sort of 14% or so, but that is a market turnaround from what we've seen. It's over. a long way from where it was. Yeah, and, yeah. This, and this is part of an ongoing process that we've seen over the years where both financial markets and economists have been pushing back when they expect you know, rate, rate rises to occur. And now I've actually gone and seen that you know, there's a meaningful uh, risk that's now been priced in, uh, not just because I think what we saw with the national accounts this week, but obviously what's been seen abroad with the uh, financial market volatility uh, and also you no know, concerns about what the other uh, trade tensions between the US and China could go and lead to the, uh, to the global economy. One of the things uh, I, that keeps ringing in my ears um, this week is 
um, something that Glenn Stevens, when he was governor, said a few years ago when it was this time of year, there was some scratchy data around. And he used a speech where he said, like, and he was pretty forceful about it. He said, look, everybody just chill out. They're exactly the words he used. He said, chill out. And then he cut. Yeah, that was, <laughs> yeah. that was in 2015. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, so chill out. We'll come back and see what the data says. Now, there's not another RBA meeting until February. Um, That's right, yeah. Um, so two months um, you know, we, there's going to be limited data in that. Um, the, there's a summer effect, I suppose, in the housing market where, you know, it's hot, it's holiday time, people are away. So, you know, the dynamics of um, listings volumes and clearance rates and everything might be, you know, seasonally affected and particularly given the environment we're in. So we, let's fast forward to, to, let's think about, you know, like we get to February. I think there's a really interesting thing that you pointed out, uh, Gareth, and you know this week is that actually, you know, let's not forget that the Australian economy has hit air pockets before um, and has managed to rebound. And I think um, twice we've used uh, the uh, the headline over the last three or four years uh, that Australia's economy, Australia's astonishing economy, does it again when there's been a rebound from a kind of a slowdown or a weak quarter or something. Yeah, uh, uh, and, and I think people have almost forgotten that it was only a week ago we had a quite good capex report where the forward-looking intentions were actually upgraded quite materially. So by ten, you know, if you, 10 if you, billion or so, yeah do, yeah. do we care about where we're going or where we've gone? And the GDP figures told us what happened in the September quarter, so it was weak. But the capex intentions told us what's likely to happen, and they were strong. And I think that they've been discounted incredibly quickly, um, but, they're, but, they're, but they're still real. Um, and, so, and so I think that there's just been a, a short-term sort of focus on what was an underwhelming result on Wednesday. But actually, if we look at the last month about what the data is telling us, we saw a pickup in wages, we saw, saw the unemployment rate hold at 5%, and we, we saw investment intentions upgraded. And none of that stuff should be discounted. Uh, at the same time, some of the risks that are building at the moment are a bit harder to fix, right? So this consumption issue. Maybe you can talk about why that is just such a big lumbering beast um, uh, in the GDP, GDP yeah. equation. Uh, well, it's huge. So it's the it's the bulk of GDP. Um, and it's we don't know to the extent that, that asset prices influence the spending decisions of households. And what we do know on asset prices is that they're falling. They're, they're coming off in Sydney and Melbourne. That's the housing market. And equities have also been pretty weak. And we don't know at what point that tips over to the the spending decisions of households and if households decide as a collective to start saving rather than spending and someone's spending is someone else's income then we end up with a point where things turn down and that is the concern um i don't think we we know yet because we've as i said earlier we've had that like solid quarter weak quarter solid and and we had a weak quarter so i don't i don't think we know what households are going to do but there is that risk that if dwelling prices keep falling it's going to weigh on what households end up doing in terms of expenditure, and that is the risk for the economy. Yeah, it starts to feed into everything, sentiment, and people saying, you know what, I'm just going to hunker down a little bit. Um, it's self-perpetuating, basically, yeah. uh, and, and that's the risk. And I, I think, you know, we've been talking about the RBA already this morning, but we, we're not talking about the government. And and the government and the, has a lot of levers that they can use to stimulate the economy. And I, I think the budget position is good. We've got an election next year. 
if the if, if if the evidence grows that the economy is slowing, then we should look to fiscal policy, yeah. not just monetary policy. Well, this is exactly like monetary policy has been doing pretty much all the heavy lifting because. Uh, and I'm happy to say this, I've written this many, many times, there is just this really bad problem uh, in Australian politics, which is uh, to this culture, which is like um, uh, nominal numbers of around billions of dollars in deficit or surplus, right? So, and that's like a KPI for the government, right? So like, you know, they're $3 billion, you know, ahead uh, of where they said they would be. Um, well, that, you know, that's a, a fraction of GDP, and that's $3 billion that could have been in people's pockets or relief for businesses or whatever, right? So that could have been helping uh, grease the rails uh, just a little bit while people are, as they have been, undoubted, undoubtedly feeling the pinch. I wrote last year, coming up to the federal budget, that I thought that they should have been more ambitious on income tax, um, uh, uh, in, uh, with income tax deductions. Oh, they I, gave, think, I completely agree. Right. Yeah. And in fact, the the the, the um, tax cuts that were flagged were so far into the future that we just discount them because we we don't know they're going to arrive, and there wasn't really the kind of tax reform that would help households today, which is which is what matters. Yeah, yeah. They say you know the headline is you know five hundred dollars per person you know next year. Like, and exactly, like, you know, like, we don't know these days, you know, who's going to be the prime minister, who's going to be in government um, uh, in, in a year's time. So, like, how is that going to move the dial in terms of people's behaviour? Really, spot you know? on. And I, I don't think people spend on the basis that there's an, the expectation in the future is that they get money back. I think, I think if you want to influence the spending decisions of households, you need to you need to have policy which basically impacts them today, not where they think at some point in the future they, they'll have an impact. I think very uh, prescient point and certainly something we'll be returning to um, because we'll have, I think, next week, I have to check the diary, but um, next week we've got the um, mid-year... Um, uh, economic my EFO. my EFO. always exciting yeah um, so um, so and my, it'll be a, it'll be the biggest my EFO, uh, in years I reckon so um, but they will be you know staking out the ground for like here's you know we're back in surplus etc now what, what, what we're touching on this budget thing very quickly Gareth yeah. one thing I always know in your in your research pieces that you write is that you emphasize nominal GDP uh, I was just wondering if you can explain to the listeners what nominal GDP is and why does it matter? Because to me, like, obviously we live in a nominal world. We don't live in a seasonally adjusted chain volume uh, world. Why is it important? Look, in a, in a nutshell, nominal GDP is income. Uh, it's, it's the dollars that we all feel and experience. Um, it, it, we don't live in the, the, the real GDP world, if you like. And the, the, the household experience is basically what is happening to my pay packet uh, and what is happening to the things that I have to buy. And nominal GDP is capturing the total income that the economy has earned. And it looks actually pretty good. However, it's not flowing back through the household sector the way it traditionally has. Um, and that's a function of the fact that a lot of that lift in nominal GDP has come through via the resources sector. And so if you've got shares in the resources companies, well, great, you, you get the windfall of, of, of the fact that things are going well there. But if you don't, then you don't feel like what the numbers are actually implying. But at the end of the day, monetary policy is more related to what's happening in terms of nominal GDP than there's real GDP because it's a measure of income and, and interest rates. Are effectively, we've got an inflation targeting central banks, so that's why monetary policy set off that. So it, it, it really matters and it, it matters for government revenue as well.
So um, I'm really enjoying this. Uh, it's a, certainly a great way to spend a Friday morning. Uh, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back after that. You're listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan here with David Scott, and our guest is senior economist from the Commonwealth Bank, Gareth Aird. Okay, so one of the things that we were just touching on there before was commodity prices. This has been really extraordinary, hasn't it, in the last couple of years? I look back at the budget figures, um, and you were talking about um, you know nominal GDP uh, um, uh, being affected by you know that's our national income if you like, um, and that being affected by um, the commodity prices to a large extent, um, and that you know if you've got shares in resources companies um, you, you've been doing very well, but the resources companies themselves have been doing spectacularly well. Um, I looked at coal prices again last night, right? So in the budget they've got I think one hundred and twenty dollars odd um, per ton factored in. Um, Australian coal at the moment is selling for 220 bucks a ton. It is way over what was expected. So let's talk about how that factors then into national income and, you know, flows into the economy. It's been very, like, it, it's been good, basically. The last couple of years, we've, as a country, we've had another lucky lucky run and it's been via higher commodity prices. And that's actually, it's, it's it, if you hold resource companies, you've done well. But the, the federal budget has done well as well. So ultimately, the way that households will be able to share that prosperity, if you like, is via some fiscal reform that means that the money goes back to households. Because at the moment, what it's basically showing up is, is a declining budget deficit. And, and, and we'll probably see a surplus for, for, for next year. But households don't feel that yet. They will feel it if some of that's handed back. So ideally... Um, we end up in a position where the government can actually say, look, we'll cut tax, whatever whatever else, and that's how households actually share that national prosperity. And in return then, the impact of that when we get to the monetary policy side is that, side is that you, you know, in theory, it puts a floor under this consumption problem to an extent. I, I think that's exactly right. And I think, I mean, the RBA would, would, would want that. They they would be well aware that it's constantly talked about is what is the interest rate response to any slowing in the economy, not what is the fiscal response. And it's it never used to be like that. It's become that way more recently. But you used to look to governments to pull the levers that they can to stimulate the economy. And it's all been down to the Reserve Bank. In fact, we've had a, a government which is trying to close the deficit at the same time as we've been relying on really low interest rates to stimulate the economy. So, you know, I, I think if the budget is has improved to such an extent that there's money that can be given back to households, we, we, sh- we should all want that. Yeah, yeah. Everyone benefits as a result of that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's look, it's it feeds into so many things. I mean, this 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 sort of general unease that you see in all sorts of advanced economies around. Um, you know, income distribution or whatever you want to call it, where you want to call it wealth inequality, um, that, you know, and people are kind of like, well, I'm kind of just a bit fed up. Um, you know, things aren't working for me. Uh, and I thought it was interesting, Josh Frydenberg, the treasurer, the other day talking about how, look, it shows that people are confident in where things are going and and just... Yeah, I did have to call him out on Twitter on that. I'm yeah. sure he probably ignored me. Yeah. Um, Dave, commodity prices, just quickly, this uh, this global picture has been really interesting, hasn't it? Um, I mean, very volatile iron ore markets. Um, yeah, that's more, I think, specific to, uh, you know, 
specific factors within China, and particularly the steel industry there. Uh, obviously, profit margins were uh, were getting absolutely hammered because you saw um, what happened was that the raw material costs were going up quite substantially at the same time. Steel prices started to come off, so squeeze, squeeze, squeeze. And then you had this period where the Chinese uh, industrial sectors will go and have curbs placed over winter to go and improve uh, environmental quality. The combination of having very, very thin margins or actually you know, losing money on steel production and those cuts you know, has seen a lot of people going and saying, well, hang on a second, are steel mills going to go and be looking to produce steel uh, at this level where they're not making any money at a time when the government is cracking down on pollution? The answer is probably no. Uh, so we saw that really abrupt fall in iron ore prices uh, and, uh, and coke and coal prices and a whole lot of other you know, inputs into steel last week, early last week, and we've seen a small rebound, but... Uh, it's still fairly uh, fairly soft and, and low compared to where it was just a month ago. Yeah, um, it's it's going to be interesting, and and um, with the volatility that there is in all sorts of asset prices, I mean, we might talk quickly um, about what's happened on uh, on in global equities uh, this week. It's been quite a ride. It has. Uh, the whole uh, G20 uh, meeting, the dinner date of the uh, of the century, and some uh, people were going calling. Uh, once again, this is what's become a common feature of this uh, this trade spat uh, and this negotiation process uh, is that an announcement gets put out there with no specifics, you know, just you know, loose promises to go and do things. Uh, and the markets have seen it so many times now, and I was not surprised in the slightest. I remember I tweeted on uh, on Sunday evening, so I wonder how long markets will uh, will, will cheer this can kicking exercise. Uh, the answer was about half a session. Uh, markets saw straight through it. You know, when the gap opened in the, uh, the the morning, things were looking okay. Was there any follow through buying? No, there wasn't. It just stayed there, and it was just all the ominous signs. And then, obviously, we had Trump uh, tweeting that he's a tariff man. Uh, then we've had uh, you know, this arrest of the Huawei uh, executive in Canada on behalf of the U.S. government uh, more recently, and that's just led to this. You know, everyone's thinking the scepticism towards what potentially might actually arrive from this, uh, this trade spat and how far it could actually potentially escalate uh, given a misstep by one of the sides is, uh, is enormous. And that's why you're seeing like, you know, financial markets are starting to get really, really edgy about that. It's leading to you know, almost an inversion of the uh, 210s US curve. You know, we saw into our single digits uh, yeah. and basis points. Absolutely uh, massive move in the yield curve from like 27 basis points a, a, a week ago on the 210s. It's huge. No, markets are, markets yeah. are truly fretting about uh, you know, potential for a, quite a significant growth slowdown or you know, given the, uh, the history of the uh, 210s curve and being a fairly accurate uh, and a predictor of recessions, people are actually openly starting to go and talk about you know, a US recession, you know, maybe late next year in 2020, you know, 2020 is when the US presidential election is as well. Whether it's going to, whether markets are overreacting, they, they do do from time to time, but uh, realistic at the moment, panic is setting in. Yeah, look, it's, it, it's interesting thinking about the bond market and, and yields. And, you know, I was at the RBA event last night and I was thinking, oh, you know, we've got a cash rate of one and a half percent what happens next? You know, we can we can go a little bit lower, but if you think about the next 10 or 20 years, what, what is the future of monetary policy? And, and, and we've, in the US, so we've got a very tight labor market, but the, the yield curve has inverted a little bit, certain parts of the curve, which is basically the market saying, we're getting near the end point. Um, but we're going back down to zero then, and and so I just I ended up having a chat with, uh, with with another mate there last night. We just sort of, you know, extrapolating where where does monetary policy go over the next ten or twenty years? Because we've we've been able to cut rates for effectively thirty years in order to stimulate the economy when it needs it. 
and then we have tightening cycles and we have easing cycles. But at each point, the, the level that we go up to is lower. Mm. So now we get to the point where we're incredibly low. You know, we, we've got a 5% unemployment rate and yet a 1.5% cash rate. So it's like, well, where, where do we go over the next 10 or 20 years? I think it's fascinating. Yeah, it's a really and in a strange way. I, I don't know if the central banks themselves actually talk about what is the future of their role in economies. Well, what is it? When did inflation targeting start? What, early 90s? Yeah, but, it would, but, but, but at the time, it was all about containing inflation. <coughs> it wasn't about trying to produce it. <laughs> yeah. And yet now we're at the stage where the, the fear is always low, in, uh, inflation's too low. But we're at the lower bound. I mean, Europe, Japan, they're at the lower bound. And I, I think it's going to be a fascinating space to watch over the next 10, 20 years, because the way we've thought about monetary policy and how it stimulates growth is not going to work the same because interest rates are close to zero. So there you go, kids. If you're studying economics, get ready to go and throw out your, uh, your textbook. It's yeah, going yeah. to be rewritten in uh, the next few decades. Well, that's right. Well, like, um, you know, I had colleagues uh, published things on Business Insider, you know, talking about textbooks from economics textbooks from back in the 90s, saying that there was a zero lower round on, on interest rates. Mm. And that there's absolutely no way that, uh, you know, you could pay somebody to borrow money. Like, it just, it just, the world doesn't work like that. Um, but it turns out that. It has it happened, and and at the same time, we've had this weird, very very strange, this mystery of uh, all sorts of inflationary pressures just vanishing. Um, maybe it's efficiencies in global supply chains, big part of it, undoubtedly technology. Um, but you've got this very very strange thing where you know, which Australia may may need to stare down uh, to in the next few years, which is that even with a lot of st monetary stimulus in the economy, um, that it's extremely hard to get inflation um, back up into something that looks like reasonable, where you can start to lift rates. Some of the dis disinflation isn't problematic though. And I always have an issue with people talking about the fact, oh, well, inflation's below the RBA's target. This is, this is undesirable. I'm thinking, hang on, it's pretty good that I go down to the department store and the T-shirt that I bought 12 months ago is now cheaper. That, that's, that's a win for households. So I think, I think some of the disinflation pressures aren't actually problematic. They should be welcomed if, if, if you like. I think where it becomes problematic is if wages are also anchored down. And I think that's, that's the issue because we ultimately want cheaper goods and services because that reflects productivity dividend. We can produce these things cheaper now so the price shouldn't be rising as much. However, you want workers pay packets to be rising and then they actually feel like you know, they're, they're getting the benefits, if you like, of um, lower prices and also it, it helps them with repay debt. But I just think a lot of the time when, when analysts are looking at the CPI and, and it's almost like a really weak print is, an, is viewed negatively, I'm thinking, well, that's sort of good that some of these things that we have to buy are going down in price because at the end of the day, you've still got to buy them and it means you can spend your money on other things by virtue of the fact that some of the stuff that you, that you buy is, is falling in price. Probably just not, not a great uh, scenario for anyone who's got a, a large uh, no, holding of debt. That would probably be the you know, least desirable outcome, though, for you know, disinflationary forces. And you've got a stock of debt that you're on. There's a nominal amount that's sitting there. You know, if, if prices are going backwards you know, in terms of asset prices in particular, I think that would be obviously you know, a tr that would be like a troubling scenario for, uh, for deflation. Oh, t totally. But, you know, there's a whole lot of people as well in Australia that are retired and, and they're they're grateful, if you like, for the fact that some of the stuff that they have to buy isn't going up in price. And they're, you know, they've, they've got to pull the savings that they're using to consume and 
they would they they would not be advocating policy that that ends up basically meaning that the price of the stuff that they're going to buy is going up by three or four percent. So I just think I guess it's, I'm just thinking out loud here, but in 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 a biggest perspective, not all disinflation is a bad thing, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a fascinating um, area. And look, it leads me nicely on to, um, can't believe we're only really getting to this now, uh, this far in, but uh, the equation for the RBA um, in the sort of medium term. Um, uh, what's your outlook on, you know, rates? Um, uh, and also, we I think it's, we, we need to touch on this thing where, where um, Guy DeBell said at that speech that you were at, um, that... Uh, rate cuts are, of course, an option, and well, it's like, well, duh, uh, of course they are, <laughs> right? Um, um, but also, he pointed out that, um, that that QE is a policy option for Australia. Now, both of those things, again, you know, well, duh, we know, but the timing is not, I, I think, insignificant. Um, but what do you think the the equation is for the RBA on rates first? Look, I, I don't think they're going to do anything for a while. Um, you know, we obviously had a weak result for GDP, but I think the labour market's still key as to whether or not they change interest rates. And, you know, the forward-looking indicators of the labour market still look pretty good. As I said, we had CapEx intentions upgraded. You know, that, that, you don't you don't cut in that environment. So I think the hurdle for them to cut uh, is relatively high at the moment, and it would require the unemployment rate rising. And we at CBA don't expect that to happen. We look at the evidence and the forward-looking indicators of the labour market, like the Job Vacancy Series, the NAB Employment Index, they're all looking pretty good still. So I think we're going to end up with another probably 12 months or so of, of the RBA doing nothing, which means for analysts like um, all of us, we, we're going to be pouring over adjectives rather than, <laughs> rather than anything we're else. We're all experts now after oh, two and a half years. Get out your thesaurus. Exactly. Um, and I... <laughs> And I think that's probably going to be the way it, it, it plays out. Um, and what about this idea of, of, of QE? I mean, you know, um, obviously, look, we're a million miles um, from that happening. And again, I'll go back to the chill out thing. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot of golf to play before um, um, before anything like this becomes something that is remotely on the in play. Um, so it's a hypothetical for, for the moment, but, but, but talk about the hypothetical. Yeah. Uh, well, well, we've seen it materialise in, in Europe. We've seen it, it's still underway actually in Europe. We've had the, it happened in England. Uh, I was actually working in England at the time when QE came in. So it was a fascinating time to be working in markets over there. And obviously the, the um, US has done QE and Japan's been doing QE on and off for, for a long, long time. I personally don't like it because I think it's, it's an indirect way to stimulate the economy and it ultimately benefits people that own assets and not every individual. So, you know, it, it's obviously a policy tool for the Reserve Bank, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if in the next 10 or 20 years, what is perceived as the conventional toolkit, if you like, for central banks is expanded beyond the remit of just interest rates and QE. And there's a more direct transmission mechanism where they effectively give government money to spend, monetizing debt, if you like. But I mean, because QE is sort of that, but it's not quite that. And it, it ultimately just inflates assets without benefiting every every individual, which I think should be the 
be the aim. Yeah, QE blurs the lines between monetization of uh, no of debt. Uh, no, that's what you're referring to. Is like no, basically no. I remember uh, Ben Bernanke was known as uh, Helicopter Ben. Basically, you no know, traveling around the helicopter, dropping out sacks of cash, you no, know, for people to go and spend and everything else. And you know, it sounds laughable, but uh, no, really, it is not far off monetizing debt. Because, I mean, I, I remember I was working in the UK. I was working in the debt management office. That's the issuer of UK government bonds. We'd we'd be auctioning bonds in the morning and in the afternoon the Bank of England would be buying bonds, but they never bought them directly <laughs> from us. So optically it was always like, we're not monetizing debt, but really that's what happens. Mm. It's just though you could do it in a, a much more direct way, which has a, I think a, a benefit for all individuals rather than just the holders of assets. That's fascinating. I mean, it, like it's just saying it out loud. I mean, we kind of know that that's what happens, but but, but just saying it out loud, it's like, it does. Oh, it's all at arm's length though, so it's all legitimate. So yeah. just remember that. <laughs> That's right. Um, okay, so um, Gareth, one, I just want to touch on one final thing. Um, okay, so uh, uh, we're in this period of housing downturn. Um, uh, there's, it doesn't look like we're, we're near a floor yet. Um, now there's all sorts of debates and I, and I think uh, as I've called it before, you know, dip, dipping your toe into the white waters of, um, you know, Australian property Twitter or, you know, the debate around, you know, how people talk about um, what has driven the bubble and all of that kind of thing um, or driven the, the in, you know, huge run up in, in house prices that we've seen in the major cities in, in the last decade. Um, but. Uh, one factor that is in that conversation is something that you've written about, I think, uh, in a very, very detailed uh, way over the years, and it's population growth. Um, so I thought it would be a good opportunity to maybe just um, get you to talk about that a little bit and how you think about migration, the migration equation for GDP, um, the health or otherwise of, uh, of supporting consumption growth and, and other elements of the economy through um, through migration program and, and the strong population growth that Australia has? Sure. Look, it's been something that I've been, I guess, interested in for a while. And I think I think I was talking about it before it became mainstream to talk about it. And, and almost as a result now that it's been discussed more widely, I've sort of backed off in, in commentating on it. And, and the, the reason that I started talking about it, because I just thought, as economists, particularly economists in Australia, we have, we have become as a collective way too focused on aggregates. And I think the Reserve Bank, I'll put them in that category, I'll put Treasury, I'll put Government. They are focused on telling us about how many jobs have been created in, in aggregate terms, what is the growth rate of our economy versus the, the growth rate of economies offshore. And it's missing what is the lived experience of the household. And I thought we, we need to separate these two things and actually talk about what, what is going on to households. And in order to do that, you've got to take account of the population growth and strip it out of the statistics. And basically meant that things were more sobering in, in the Australian economy than what, what the headlines um, basically implied. And I, I think, look, I, I would like to see it as basically an election, um, basically a, a policy that's put forward to the Australian people to vote on, because I don't think Australians ever had a real say about what is the population strategy of, of, of Australia. It's just sort of evolved. It's meant that we've got a very strong population growth rate that benefits some sectors of the economy, absolutely, but it also weighs on other parts of the economy and, and notably households to some extent. And it's it's probably a Sydney and Melbourne issue. Um, but I, I do think that 
you know, as economists, we, we can get too bogged down in spreadsheets and numbers and claim things are good when they're not or vice versa. And at the end of the day, it's a lived experience of households that matter. And I think we don't, we don't pick that up unless we start accounting for the impact that population has on people. So what, what, let's talk about some of those impacts on, on households. So, so what are they? I mean, I can answer a question. So on my way on the bus here this morning, uh, so I live uh, Green Square, one of the um, fastest growing uh, population centres in, uh, in Australia. I think it's going to be one of the uh, most densely, po- densely populated pockets of the country in a short period that's, of time. That's what is predicted, you know, to go and rival the likes of Hong Kong or, or whatnot. Uh, so to try and get on the bus in the morning, usually I go and work from home because, you know, it's just simply too congested. The, uh, the, the roads uh, coming into the city are, are too, too bad or I'll go and get the train from Green Square because uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's simpler because you're underground. You don't have to go and worry about so much stuff. But even then, you've got to go and deal with all the people on the, uh, on the train who are coming from the airport, which we don't have facilities for to go and put their luggage. Anyway, today, um, standing at the other uh, bus stop, I rocked up and there was probably, I'd say, 40 people at my one individual bus stop. And that was after I saw one bus had already departed, obviously couldn't pick up any people. Uh, so once this other bus came, everyone tried to go and crowd on, and then you had the bus driver going, say, sorry, people, we can't go and let you on, there's too many people in the bus. And then all these people started getting aggressive and angry. That is the living experience and being <laughs> overpopulated. Spot on, spot on. And, and this is why we don't need to think of, we don't need to talk like economists when we're thinking about this. We just need to talk like, everyday people who have that experience. I mean, when I, when I was at school, nobody lived in a, an apartment. It would have been bizarre if I had friends that lived in an apartment. And yet when my kids go to school, it's going to be common for kids to live in apartments. And yet we talk about we've had 30 years of uninterrupted economic growth. How is it that the result of all that is people of, of a younger generation now living in apartments, not houses? Like that, that's, a, that's a tangible impact, if you like, of inflating population too quickly, which I believe is what, what, what's happened, and, and the negative impact, if you like, of the next generation. Without the, the, the infrastructure planning. Absolutely, um, yeah. 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 It, it's, it's the tail wagging the dog. I mean, we are seeing a lift in infrastructure spending at the moment in New South Wales and Victoria, but that, that's coming after years of underinvestment where basically things have got to the point where policy is catching up rather than policy being forward-looking. And, and policy should be forward-looking. There should be a plan for all this stuff. And, and it, it does feel like there's been a real disconnect between what has happened in terms of our population policy and then what has happened with, with the, the experience of household as a result of that policy. Uh, one thing that always strikes me too is that we've, obviously, you know, we talk about, you no, know, it's, it's just largely a Sydney and Melbourne issue. There's you no know, pockets in Southeast um, in Queensland. I know that are obviously dealing with, uh, with, with similar issues. If you've ever, if you've ever driven from, uh, from surfers into Brisbane, Holy wow, that yeah. is quite don't, a trip. <laughs> don't, yeah. if you've got the choice, get the train. But uh, it's it's really interesting because what you're saying is all these people are moving to you know, predominantly Sydney and Melbourne. So economic activity begets economic activity. And so what you're having is all these jobs are being created and everything else is happening in these two particular cities. Then obviously you need to have the need for infrastructure to go and you know, cater for these people. So we're starting to see that in New South Wales and Victoria right now. But what I think needs to be, in my personal opinion, is not the 1.6% population growth in you know, hundreds of thousands we're seeing uh, in terms of actual people is a problem. I think the problem is that we're not having a solution to go and spread that out across the remaining of the country. You know, you're talking about places like Perth, Adelaide, uh, I know pockets in, I know on the Queensland coast, uh, you know, there's so many different areas out there where are probably being 
underpopulated for what's you know you can actually get an offer there but if you don't have jobs well this is the, to, go, like, to go and actually you know get to go and live there people will not be able to go and live there it's, it's spot on i mean i almost just look at it as we are one of the most desirable places in the world to live I, and i don't think that's a subjective statement i think most people w- would agree with that let's let's preserve that Let's, let's not dilute that. And that doesn't mean we can't have population growth. It doesn't mean we can't have immigration, not at all. But let's make sure that whatever policy we do, we don't dilute what we've already got mm. in pursuing that. And I, I'm not sure yeah, that that's Yeah, because that's the, the asset, right. if you like. Exactly. Right? Exactly. It's the quality of life. It's the the, the, the fact that you, the, the schools are good, the hospitals are good, it's safe. Preserve it. it. Yeah, yeah. Make sure that whatever policy direction we take, we don't undermine what is so good about being here. And, and I, I think in the last, it's probably only the last maybe five, seven years that, that there's been a disconnect and where we are at risk, I think, of basically diluting what is so good about living in Australia. Look, um, and it, uh, on that note about you know how good it is uh, to live in Australia, I hope everybody's looking forward to to Christmas. We have got the uh, annual um, Christmas special, which is becoming a bit of a tradition now. Um, we're recording that next week, where we'll look back at our best and worst calls of the year. We're going to repeat. There's ample. <laughs> Given what people were saying in January this year compared to what's happened. I know it's been quite a year, so it's going to be. I think it's going to be a very colourful show. Um, and we're featuring on it, uh, we've got the same panel as last year, so that's uh, Joanne Masters from ANZ, Laura Fitzsimmons from JP Morgan, and James Whelan from, from VFS. Uh, so some familiar voices, uh, and no doubt there'll be, uh, it'll be a bit of a, a colourful um, conversation. Right, um, but for this week's show, we've been joined by senior economist uh, from the Commonwealth Bank for what I thought was a, just a ripping chat. Uh, Gareth Aird, thanks very much for coming on the show. Thank you very much. Uh, Dave, it's been a good one. Very good. I love the chat and uh, I'm looking forward to next week as well. Okay, you can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. We're on Twitter at B-I-A-U-S. You can find myself and Dave individually on Twitter too, at Colgo and at Scotty. You can find the show under Devils and Details on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe, rate us and leave us a review. The show is produced by Rick Salter. We'll catch you next time.